All right. Um, before we jump back in, let's turn to Ephesians 4 and look at where we've been at. I think half of you guys weren't here last week, right? So we should pick up a little bit. Ephesians 4. <clears throat> and I'm going to read verse 11 through 13-ish. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, and the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of, a, of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." Uh, and I'm going to keep going, actually. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes a growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I should probably stop there. I wanted to stop at 13, then 15, then 16. Um, Ephesians is good. It's deep and rich. But... Uh, last week we went over the first half of these offices that are outlined in Ephesians 4. Uh, remind me what we discussed about uh, apostles. Who are the apostles? What is the gift of an apostle? He knew Christ. Okay. Walker, you know Christ? Are you an apostle? I mean, I do. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay. Like I'm looking at you, he knew Christ. Okay. Yeah, so. Walked with him. Yeah. Yeah, when they went to replace the apostle, that was one of the qualifications when they replaced Judas with Matthias, right? That he had known Christ. He had been with him throughout his whole ministry um, from his baptism to his resurrection. Um and in the lowercase a sense of apostle, what does that mean? What does the word apostle mean? One sent. Yeah, one sent, right? Um, I so think it's... be somebody, you know, one time or so, I'm sure, of course, you got the missionary thing in there, too. Yeah, a lot of people will refer to missionaries as somebody who has an apostolic gift. I think that gets confusing. I don't think that that's necessarily what Paul had in mind when he was writing Ephesians. But that's a, a way that it's often used to, to take that limited aspect that he is one sent and apply that in modern day to a missionary or a pastor or somebody else. Um, what about prophets? What is a prophet? One who speaks the words of God. He's uh, representing the, the Lord in a, in a prophetic way. <laughs> Let's hope so, right? Yes, yes. All right. He's, he's speaking uh, revelations from God, or he's adding to existing revelations. Good. All right. And, uh, we've talked about the two roles of a prophet. So you talked about speaking new revelation or adding to the revelation. Another way that we've mentioned that throughout our series is foretelling or forthtelling. What are the, the distinctions there? What's the difference? When somebody is foretelling something, what are they doing? Prophesying. Prophesying. When they're foretelling, what are they doing? 
Well, Walker? I don't know how I was going to say something, telling something already known. Yeah, they are proclaiming something. Uh-huh. So just to... They're confronting yeah, yeah, something that's not future. So foretelling is to foretell the future, okay. to speak in uh, a prophetic sense in, in that word, that it's it has not yet come to pass, and so he's telling what's going to happen. But foretelling is just to proclaim. Elijah going in front of Ahab Jezebel, right? Yeah. He's confronting them. Yep. And calling them out, right? Yep. All right. And evangelists. What is an evangelist? This is a little bit more tricky, maybe. We're all evangelists. Yeah. Maybe not in the sense that he's speaking about in Ephesians chapter 4, right? That right. he's given some to uh, the churches as evangelists. But we are all called to do the work of an evangelist, just like Timothy was called to do the work of an evangelist. Send out, send out to share. Say it again. Share the good news. Yeah. Evangelism. Yep. Proclaiming. Yeah, it's to, uh, to speak the truth. And we, we talk about the fact that we're kind of limited on our information. Um, that's pretty much the, the only passage we have is Paul telling Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And then Philip is called an evangelist. He's the only one throughout all of Scripture who is mentioned as being an evangelist, as having the gift of evangelism. But here Paul expounds and he says that some have been given to the church with the gift of evangelism. So... Uh, we were shooting in the dark a little bit, but we took a stab at it. And then we, <clears throat> we ended up with um, elders, pastor, teacher, last week. So we'll pick up there and continue on. Um, perhaps we will. So we were talking about how the standard set in the New Testament is a plurality of elders in each local church. It never talks about one single elder, one single pastor, but there's a plurality whenever we read through Scripture. And I read through <clears throat> those Acts passages for us, and then we were kind of rushed at the end. So why don't we pick up those last three references and uh, take a gander at those. Will somebody grab Philippians 1? And I will get Titus 1.5. Who can get James? All right. Whenever you're ready, Logan. Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with overseers and deacons. All right. So overseers there, plural, um, are mentioned as being there also with the deacons, plural. And then Titus 1.5, Paul writing to uh, Titus says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So again, a plurality. And then James 5.14. Is anyone of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to pray over him. And anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. All right. So each one of those, along with all these references and acts, we see a plurality. There are no single pastor churches. And then naturally there's going to be a diversity among the elders, uh, different gifts and abilities. And this is where we left off last week, what the church is called to do in reference to elders. Uh, let's look up 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. And I'll read that along with 13. 
And Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So we see there that we are called to respect others, to accept that instruction, um, and that uh, elders have charge in the Lord. Again, we talked last week about um, Hebrews thirteen seven. This next one, how there's a a pretty fearful aspect in there that um, elders will give an account. So let's look at that Hebrews thirteen seven that we are to respect and imitate elders. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember those who led you. I think this should be 17. Because um, this is speaking about those before. I'll read it anyway. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considered the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. So this is speaking um, to the Hebrews about um, those who, who led them before. I think more towards... Um, the prophets but I haven't really studied that in a minute uh, but Hebrews thirteen seventeen says obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you and we see this here as well so respect imitate and obey and then uh, fourthly, to, to hold them accountable. That's a super important aspect of the church to keep the, the elders in check. Because if not, especially if there's a, a single pastor model, then they can just run off and uh, teach whatever if they don't have anybody else keeping them accountable. Of course, they are accountable to God and they should be correctly dividing the word of truth. But that doesn't always happen the way that it should be. And so one thing that we ask in our, our membership uh, meetings here and we we try to emphasize is that it's your job, your role to make sure that the teaching in this church is adequate and it's coming straight from the word. And if not, then um, of course the, the pastors are responsible, but you guys are responsible as well to, to call us out and to make sure that we're on point. First Timothy 5, 19 through 21. Who can grab that? struggling with allergies this morning. I thought it was good until I started teaching. (laughs) Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain those principles without bias, being nothing in the spirit of partiality. All right. So a few things we see there um, that if you're going to have an accusation, that's not a bad thing, but you should have two or three witnesses. It should be uh, documented and you should be able to account for that. Um, And then it should be made public. If the sin is public, uh, including teaching, then the rebuke also should be public in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning, it says in verse 20. Uh, and then 21 says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Yeah. 
So this is this is speaking of the local body, right? The local yeah. church. Yeah. Right? Um, and yet, you know, in today's world we have pastors that are <clears throat> excuse me. They have a wide presence. And I, I'm not saying that um, like a Ravi Zacharias guy, is that what you're thinking? Well, that kind yeah, of I model? mean, a Ravi Zacharias, a, you know, Joel Osteen, that kind of thing. In other words, I'm not saying there's a lack of this, but do you think it's biblical that there are people like a Jordan Peterson, Justin Peters, Justin Peters, thank you, Justin Peters, who is... Uh, as learning in the word who is confronting these people. I think he's doing it biblically, but mm-hmm. do you think that that's a, an expansion on this? Um, a lot of people will look at that and they'll say that he has a, a gift of evangelism and they'll define that kind of a role as an evangelist, somebody who goes from church to church and uh, they have some kind of parachurch ministry. But regardless, all those those people, whether uh, Justin Peters, Ravi, uh, Joel Osteen, they should all be accountable to a a local church. And that local church, they should hold them accountable and call them out. If somebody is teaching and and preaching uh, in a a public arena, like each one of them has, then I think they should be held accountable in that same arena, that they should be rebuked in that same kind of arena. Um, Just because I'm not a member of Joel Osteen's church doesn't mean that I'm not qualified to say that what he's teaching is unbiblical. because he's teaching broadly, and so he should be rebuked broadly. But that should definitely be taking place in the local church. That's where it should start. And uh, he should never have gotten the, the publicity that he did because he's not biblically qualified. Yeah. All right, other thoughts on that? All right. John Frame says, I believe that the word elder, overseer, pastor, and bishop are interchangeable titles of the same office. This is the ruling office. It is the elder who is charged with setting and administering the rules of the church, subject to the word of God. That's an important part of that verse phrase there, subject to the word of God. Among the elders, some are official teachers, those who labor in preaching and teaching. But biblically, Anybody who's an elder should be apt to teach. Uh, And different churches take different positions on this. Here we want our elders to to actually teach, to be actively involved in teaching. There are other churches, especially in the the South, where their elders don't really teach. Again, they follow more of the the one pastor model that we were looking at last week, where they have one pastor who is actively preaching and teaching, and the other elders are kind of there for moral support, it seems. Maybe they'll do uh, some counseling or some some ruling leadership oversight type, making decisions for the church. Uh, we discussed the, the board model and how a lot of churches view their, their church leadership as a board of, um, I don't know, just delegates for the church or something, but it's not really a, an elder as we see in scripture that is teaching and leading and uh, shepherding. All right, let's check out deacons, unless we have any other thoughts or questions on elders. All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 6. And this is where we see the, uh, the initial birth of 
the office of elder. Uh, it's kind of questionable whether or not these men are actually elders or whether or not they're just doing the work that would eventually develop into that office or deacon, not elder, into the office of deacons. Acts 6, 1 through 6. Will somebody grab that, please? Got it. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian, I pronounce that, Grecian? I don't know. I don't have your version. What is it called? Grecian? Some people do not say Grecian. Yeah, I have a Hellenistic too. Hellenistic Jews. Among them complained against the. <laughs> Hebrew Jews, the, so the Hebrews. We're talking here about the Greeks, Jews. We're talking about the Hebrew Jews. There you go. Yep. Right. Yeah. 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 Both Christian Jews, but two different backgrounds. Right. <clears throat> because the their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, so the twelve <clears throat> gathered all the disciples together and said, "It would not be right for us to neglect the, uh, the word of God." in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn their responsibility over to we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Chorus, Nicander, Timon, Arminius, and Nicholas, from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. All right. <laughs> I'm glad you struggled with that a little bit because I was up here sneezing and dying. So thank you for that extra time. All right. So why were these men ordained to that office at that time? What were the preceding uh, circumstances that required it? Every servants took care of that uh, issue that they had so you didn't have your elders or your uh, They could take care of that, and it would be done, done right, and then those men could report to the disciples. It's prioritizing the apostles' time, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's an important point that you brought out, Rex, that the apostles, they were serving here as the the elders, the shepherds, the overseers, as they were uh, starting out this this whole new church thing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a completely new dispensation, a new movement. Uh, Christ was beginning to build his church. He was using the apostles who were serving in this role as as shepherds and overseers. I'm sure it's that, you know, they they were growing, so obviously at the beginning it wasn't a big deal. Yep. And then it became larger and larger, and obviously the widows were being neglected, quote-unquote, or other things, probably. So they needed additional people. It's kind of like Moses. 
it came to the Lord that he had to bring up others and disperse them to help in that. Yeah, and Jethro said, hey, you need to delegate, right? And you need to set leaders over thousands and hundreds and tens because he was trying to do it all on his own. And he had probably close to two million people and he was getting burned out. And so it says here that while the disciples were increasing in number, so yeah, that's when this, this issue rose up. Uh, they were being overwhelmed. How would you characterize their, their ministry? Set in order. As a deacon, I mean, we see here there is a whole bunch of disciples, and I think they all had good hearts. I mean, they were Christians. But where you don't delegate specific people to look over and oversee, stuff gets dropped. Yeah. Between the lines. Not tried. They didn't try yeah, for you men who've been going through this uh, Zook book, the basic Bible interpretation, he talked in this last chapter about uh, different symbols and how to identify symbols in Scripture and not to take and overextend what the symbol is actually talking about. He used the example of um, Jesus is a, a lion and how it's talking about either how he's ferocious or how he's strong, um, but not about how he's crafty because Scripture talks about how Satan is um, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. So we don't want to uh, apply too many different aspects to the symbols. Well, the same is true in looking at how these deacons were appointed. We want to see, okay, well, these deacons, they were appointed to fulfill a need so that the elders could go off and they could devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And some people will will stumble here and they'll say, well, they, they appointed seven deacons. So I think our church should have seven deacons. Every church should have seven deacons. And their role was to watch over the the table and how the food was being distributed to the widows. So that's what they should do. They should only be involved in that kind of benevolent type ministry, making sure that people are taken care of. Um, but th we can definitely take that principle, like our other class is talking about, right? That aspect of principalizing the text and we can apply it to uh, mowing the lawns, to caring for finances, to uh, keeping an eye on security, which is especially pertinent in our day and age. These are different roles and tasks that deacons can oversee so that the overseers of the church of, of scripture and prayer that can devote themselves more fully to that. This office never faded away. And we can see that in First Timothy. Let's turn there real quick. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 says, Deacons, likewise, this is the list of qualifications for deacons right after the qualifications for elders. They must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women, this is a, a questionable verse, whether it's talking about women who are serving as deacons or the wives of women, uh, must likewise be the wives of women. Did I just say that? The wives of deacons. <laughs> uh, yeah, the. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to call me out, remember? <laughs> it certainly is not. No, you can see something similar in Romans 1, but it's definitely condemning it. Um, no, it's a, the same Greek word for 
woman and wife. There is no distinction. Uh, but it says women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So based on those qualifications and what we've learned in the last couple of weeks about elders, what is the main distinction between qualifications for deacons and elders? Teachers. Yeah, to be teachers, to be apt to teach, right? Uh, the word for deacon literally means table server, as noted in MacArthur and Mayhew. They assist the elders in meeting the needs of church members. And here again, the biggest qualification difference between the two is the ability to teach. So what is the most biblical form of church government? Again, go back last week and think back to uh, the different diagrams we had up here um, We've mentioned some of them this morning, the one-pastor model, the uh, board model, the Episcopalian model, where there are um, bishops. hierarchies, bishops, and archbishops outside of the church. What would you guys say is the most biblical form of church There's government? There's like six of them, six or seven. Um, congregational. Presbyterian model, where they have different presbyteries. and You said congregational. The plurality of elders. All right. And we see here a plural elder deacon model where you have the local church and the elders will oversee the, the congregation and the deacons will serve both the congregation and the elders. The congregation is accountable to the elders and also keeps the elders accountable. Um, we see here there's an asterisk that elder is pastor. There is not a distinction between an elder and a pastor, um, but they serve the, the same role, the same office, same function. They are to shepherd, to oversee, to rule, to serve. Um, and let's see here. In BMW, they actually will take what is typically put as um, something like this, where there's a, a pastor and uh, you have deacons down here and then uh, like lay church people and they'll, they'll flip that upside down and they'll say well the, the lay person is up here and then they have deacons who are serving them and then down here they have elders or pastors who are serving them and that's really kind of the mindset that we should have uh, especially those in leadership that we are here to to serve we're not we don't want to fall into this american type mentality where we're at the the top and other people are serving us that's not the biblical model again both elders and deacons are to serve they're to to sacrifice yeah you are okay not right now yeah, when the church graduated, uh, Britt and I left. But yeah, we've been part of uh, Tent Makers Bible Mission and Biblical Ministries Worldwide since we came out here in 2012. All right, so that is what we adopt as our church model, what we think is most biblical. Any thoughts or questions on that? Well, I don't uh, mean to be contentious, but Content. the, yeah, the, the other congregational models that we saw do not appear to be biblical. 
Yeah. Having a single pastor in charge of an entire church. But that's kind of what's been adopted. So that's just what people know. And I think when you're just reading through and you see that Titus is to appoint elders in every city, if you already have that presupposition come to it, then you'll read that as, okay, well, he's to appoint one elder in this city, one elder in this city, one elder in this city. Um, And you just don't really question the things that you've kind of grown up with that you've been comfortable with. So, but yeah, I agree. I think this is the most biblical and I think there are issues with the other models because there's a a lack of accountability, a lack of being able to, to spread the load. Um, but that's, that's relatively recent. I mean, also, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, every single one of us is prone to pride and and all of these sinful things that we're not supposed to be doing, having that single person in charge of an entire congregation is bad. I mean, it's, we live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. Mm-hmm. And we're prone to wander, you know, like herding cats, right? You know, it's, it's, it's everybody wants to kind of go their own way, and that includes the pastor. He's not like... Uh, uh, specially immune to simple desires and all these other things. Yeah. That, that doesn't seem like a... seems unwise, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, a good elder, a good pastor will recognize that he himself is a, an under-shepherd, right? That Christ is the head, and we're to grow up in all respects, in all aspects, and him who is the head. Uh, that's what we started off with in Ephesians 4.15, that he is our shepherd, and we are all under him. All right, Ryrie says that ultimate authority rests in the local church under Christ's headship does seem to be clearly taught in the New Testament. This does not preclude fellowship with other congregations, but it does not allow for organizational structure above the local church. So that doesn't mean that we can't fellowship with other Christian churches that are outside of this local church. Remember making that distinction between the universal church and the local church. But it does mean, kind of like we were talking about before with um, Robbie Zacharias and Joel Osteen, that I don't have... Uh, an oversight type of authority over them and they don't have an oversight type of authority over me that we are autonomous churches and we don't believe in a, a structural system above us like bishops and popes and um, the the 70 right if we take our, our local model that they've embraced um, that we are autonomous churches who have our own self-governed leadership do we qualify as a biblical local church? And let's look outside of just government, but I think it's always good to ask that question, put it on the table. Are there any ways in which we do not qualify as a biblical local church? Thinking back even a couple weeks ago to what makes up a a local church. Those who serve, who are biblically teaching the word, who um, who are fellowshipping together. Actually, we do qualify based on the structure and so forth and our constitution and how we set up the design, especially because now we're not under the biblical ministries. So we are autonomous in the sense that we are standalone mm-hmm. and we do meet the 
qualification group offices, and appointed people uh, from the pastor who was not who was elected or brought in, who is the pastor of the shepherd. The elders who were elected, deacons who were brought up and basically approved and elected, and the congregation who supports each of those categories above them and are under subjection to them. Mm-hmm. All right, good. Yeah, and I'd say that even while we were under BMW, we could still be considered a church for a time. That was a, a transitional period where we go from not being a church at all to being a church. And at some point in between, uh, that transition took place, right? Where we were uh, self-governed, autonomous, um, not dependent upon that outside organization, even though on paper we still were for quite some time. But we can definitely say without hesitation now that we are autonomous outside of their governmental purview. All right. Biblical polity. What does polity mean again? We talked about it last week. Different word for politics? Government. (laughs) Yeah, you can see politics in there, right? That that root word. Um, And Politics takes place quite a bit in government, right? So it's speaking of biblical government. Local churches should be self-governing, meaning they handle their own affairs without an outside authority making decisions for them. And so, again, there you can kind of see that gray area that we were operating in for quite some time because BMW wasn't really making decisions for us, but they were still our authority. So it is good to be where we're at now, for sure. So we appreciated BMW and their work. And again, not to, to, to be too obvious, but you know, I think, I think of this church as like when Paul was going to Ephesus or Corinth or wherever, planting a church, and he's, he's you know, um, in Titus and First Timothy and Second Timothy and Corinthians, he's basically um, as, well, obviously as an apostle, but he's talking to the elders of those churches and, and to the people of those churches. He's, he's giving them guidance from a distance, so to speak. And in, I think in that context, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, for, to remember this sometimes, but everybody here speaks English. We have a common sort of American culture and heritage. made up by a man, you know, 200 years ago. So we are literally sitting in a mission field, yep. just like Corinth, just like Ephesus. Yeah, and uh, one unique thing about that, looking back to Paul and how he would kind of govern from afar as he was speaking into the, the local elders that were governing those churches is that, uh, as we discussed last week, that role of apostleship, we don't believe has carried on, that the apostles have ceased. So that kind of leaves us in a, a different point than where they were. It's not an apples to apples comparison. Right. Um, and that's kind of where the, the mission organization is 
sought to step in and kind of fill what they see as a gap. But again, we don't have any biblical outline in scripture for a mission organization. Um, that doesn't mean that they are unbiblical, but they are extra biblical mission organizations, that is. Um, and there's, there's something broken with that, that whole system, mission organizations and, and missions as a whole, because the church should be the one sending out the missions, the missionaries. Um, but there's a, a go between, between the churches and the mission organizations. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but we'll take a, a look at that a little bit next week as we look at church planting and uh, how that functions now and how it would best function. All right. Additionally, since voting is a concept foreign to the Bible, just like mission organizations, uh, elders should rule as servant leaders. This process is synergistic. So not to be domineering and say, hey, this is how it's going to be, um, because we still need to be working with the, the congregation, working with the people. Um, we need to, to serve and lead in, in unison with the body. So right now we still embrace voting in our church because the congregation um, has a, a great stake in the things that take place here as a church. And the elders will oversee the, the different things that we'll put to a vote. So again, we're kind of in an in-between phase with that. Um, voting as a congregation versus just ruling as pastors. So that, that really is a big divide amongst Christian churches and how they, how they function, how they operate under different church government. MacArthur and Mayhew again say, the biblical precedent is clear. Though the specific roles of each leader will differ according to his giftedness, church ministry is a, t a team effort. The Apostle Paul was quick to commend his co-laborers in the gospel because their unique roles of leadership contributed to the overall strength of the ministry. So even Paul, who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was the apostle who God spoke to directly, right? He didn't get his information from man. Nobody taught him, but he got it directly from the Lord. And he realized that uh, he needed other people. He needed these other missionaries, these other servants who came to him and supported him in his role. Any questions on any of that before we seek to wrap up? All right. What do you find particularly interesting about church government? What's different than a uh, man's government in that sense of the words? Political? Yeah. It does have some inklings of it, but it doesn't have all the hierarchy of events that's going on it's really it's clearly defined and positioned and takes care of all the necessary needs of an operating biblical church, Christian church uh, as a local autonomy itself uh, in that sense of the word that's what I'm simply referring to the local church autonomy mm -hmm. in that sense of the words and it doesn't get so far away from the people 
the congregation is totally involved in the process. And each corresponds to each. In other words, it's not a one-way type direction. Or the, there is authority, obviously, but there is also a mutual accountability. Accountability by each group, yeah. which would be the pastor, elders, deacons, to the believers in that church. Hmm. Yeah, and like I was demonstrating up here, it's kind of more focused on servanthood and humility, and it's taken that uh, pyramid model and flipped it upside down. Uh, any of you guys, any of you men, want to recite our memory verse for our men's class? Uh, John 13, 14 through 16. Mm -hmm. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, you also... Yeah, you also should wash one another's feet. Um, and then, uh, truly, truly, I say to you that a servant is not above his master, neither is he who is sent above the one who sent him. So that recognition of that, that service and that servant leadership uh, that is more unique to the local church than to political government, even though it shouldn't be. And we are more focused on the work of God than the political government is, even though it shouldn't be, because they too are under the, the lordship of Christ. But uh, it is a unique atmosphere for sure. Andy? Well, I was talking to a co-worker, this has been a couple of years ago, and um, they asked me, you know, well, and I, I think it was in the context of social justice or whatever, and um, this person said to me, well, you do what your pastor says, right? And I said, well, I said, my pastor is bound by the word of God. Amen. And he obeys the word of God, and if he's not obeying the word of God, I don't know the end. Amen. There is nobody above him except for Christ. Yeah, there's a pretty famous clip out there where somebody asks John MacArthur, how much authority does a pastor have over his church? And he very quickly says, none. Um, and people kind of question that initially because of passages like Hebrews 13, 17 and some of these other ones that we went through. Um, but he says that the Bible has authority over us and the pastor has no authority over you outside of the word of God. That every pastor is bound by God's word and God's instruction uh, and if they're giving any advice or uh, command outside of scripture, then that should be rejected. Any other thoughts on that? Church government is a big thing, though. Because you look at Titus and what was happening in them churches. Yeah. And leads people astray. You know. Mm -hmm. If you ain't got a church government that's set up under the Bible, biblical terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they were dealing with Judaizers and other false teachings, and uh, Paul told Titus, you need to establish what is lacking there. You have churches there, and you need to go to, to the church in every city, and you need to fix and establish elders because there's something lacking there. So those churches wouldn't be considered biblical churches, right? They were groups of people that were gathered together, but they were lacking. They didn't have that that pastoral shepherding. Right, which, you know, the thing is, 
what what the goal is, the Christian's goal is, is to create, you know, Christians out of sinners, <laughs> right? To, to help the Word of God um, shine through people. And so you think of a church, send somebody off to the mission field. Well, a church plan would be awesome to build up a church there out of, uh, you know, out of... Uh, the, the area, the people there. Yeah. But then overnight, it's not going to boom. There's all of a sudden leaders out of that group of people. No, you've got to create that. And that's what missionaries are, are for, kind of, is to uh, help set up churches. And, and then you can be self-governing, which that's what we're shooting for. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to be that overnight. And so, I mean, we say it's not a biblical church, but a... Uh, but, uh, it's working towards that end. Yeah, it's working towards it. And yeah. that's the goal. Absolutely. That's a good goal. All right. Why is it important that a church governs itself as opposed to maybe some of these other models? We had a bishop over our church um, in Arkansas. And, I, and, and, and when we lived in Montana, there was a bishop from out of state. And, and the churches weren't even really aligned that much. We didn't have too much interaction between the churches. But then the bishop it was from an outside church. Mm-hmm. And the goal was to set up an, a bishop in, in our own churches. But I saw so many times how there was almost a conflict of interest between the bishop and our churches, our church. And that just drives me nuts. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we can we can get a glimpse of that from our our experiencing business or yeah. the secular world, right? That we can have somebody who's some suit who's sitting in an office hundreds of miles away who calls us up or writes up some document and says, "Hey, this is how things need to happen." And you're like, "But that's not going to work here. That's not right. pertinent to what's happening here on the ground, right?" And that same kind of scenario, you have some bishop who doesn't know the needs of that local body, who doesn't know what some widow is is going through or what some family is struggling through and uh, the needs of that local flock, that community. So, you got three good points. Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. <laughs> there are pros and cons, but there are more cons to to keep us from being a part of that, right? It's not It's not just the fact that you have some guy in another state telling you what to do or believe or your order of worship or all these things. It's the fact that you're basically allowing a board or whatever to dictate, in this case, what we're talking about is interpretation of scripture um, how how we look at things it's not just that it's a local thing it's the, the fact that you're allowing authority somewhere else to interpret scripture you're allowing them to to dictate what you're going to believe and not believe and there are a lot of people who would say well we're not allowing them to dictate but they just recognize and we either agree or disagree and there are people who are leaving and will likely leave the Southern Baptist the, S- the SBC is, is looser than say the Presbyterians mm-hmm. or the Episcopalians yeah, they're, they're doing a better job than some of these other organizations right? these denominations it's true. It's true. 
but yeah, to have somebody else making decisions that um, could go against scripture, that could supersede the authority of scripture, it's not a good place to be in. That's not a place we want to be in. All right, and what do you find to be the most difficult or confusing aspect of local church government? I think there is a time for local church to ask for help. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen firsthand a situation where everyone in the church was so involved and so hurt, there were so many feelings. It's like, let's get someone who's got a clear perspective yeah. to come in and just help out rather than being too proud to ask for someone. For sure. Yeah, so there can be a, a neglection of the universal church and just isolating them. We're just our own people. We're going to do our own thing without realizing that God has blessed other people, other men, to, to be able to pour into his bride, into the universal church. Uh, one way that that's manifested itself here recently in our discussions is we're talking about um, being financially accountable, having some third party financial advisor come in and say, or maybe not an advisor, a financial, um, can't think of a word. Ministry. Uh, somebody who just, who looks and uh, evaluates our finances and makes sure that we are above reproach and they can get, kind of give us a stamp of approval saying, yeah, they're, they're handling their finances well. Uh, there's nobody skimming off the top um, just to provide some outside oversight. And as I've been talking to other pastors I've known, as Jeremy's been talking, uh, we haven't found anybody really that's, that's doing that. So the autonomous, uh, independent, um, non-denominational churches that we know, they just kind of operate their own finances, which, I mean, they should, but without somebody checking in and making sure they're doing well, um, that's not a concern that they've had. So. We're trying to navigate that right now. Well, we have like an accountant. We had Stan doing it before, right? Steve. Uh, Stan from Proto Bible Church, I think, was auditing us at one time. I thought. Yeah, with with BMW, we had a a system for that, and people would come in and make sure that everything was above approach. But now that we're not under BMW, it's just kind of left in our lap, and. Uh, I think we're doing a good job of it. I think we're handling our finance as well. But to be above reproach, it would be helpful to have somebody else come and say, yeah, things are, are above water here. They're above reproach. They're looking good. Other thoughts? Checks and, checks and balances are always <clears throat> criteria for problems. Let's put it that way. Hmm. Uh, sometimes overseers or others can look into something and maybe see that before it becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. I think the other part might be is, or even just out of Utah in particular, is finances to support the local church, even yeah. the pastor, etc. Uh, that becomes a, a difficult thing for that church to remain active and viable and continue. Uh, because there is a greater church in that sense of financially that controls a lot of that. And it's hard for churches to start. Yeah. Start, start in churches. Utah's it's difficult. difficult. Yeah. And it isn't any place you go in that sense of the word, even for a missionary. Wherever they go, they have the same problem 
or how do we start a church or do we start a house and do we try to migrate from there to something greater? Mm -hmm. uh, but I think finances may be one of the, the most hindering of all. But we have to trust in God that He sent you there or brought you there for that purpose that He will be the one. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be tomorrow the next day, but mm -hmm. it will be if you prove faithful and continue in giving the word. And that is one of the, the benefits and advantages of a denomination. You look at, again, Southern Baptists, and if you want to be a missionary with a Southern Baptist, they have money set aside, and they can just send you out themselves. Whereas in a non-denominational model, you have to go around to different churches and say, hey, this is what I'm looking to do. Will you get behind me and support me? I want to go do God's work in, in this area by doing uh, X, Y, and Z. Uh, and then also you look at different churches, like you mentioned, outside of Utah, and they'll have... Uh, an abundance of funds, comparatively, I guess. And it's not uncommon to see churches that have a, a pastor of uh, teaching, a pastor of administration, a pastor of uh, children's ministry. They have like seven or eight pastors on a staff of a church that's 100, 150 people. Um, Utah is unique and different, for sure. We are a mission field in and of itself. So it is is unique. All right. Well, next week we will get more into uh, church planting. And we'll do a little exercise on church planting. And then the week after that, we're going to be in the other room with the other class and we're going to be picking up in Romans chapter 9. So I'm excited for that. All right. Anybody want to close us out in prayer? Yeah. All right. We got to thank you for. <clears throat> For loving us and giving us your your grace, God, dying for our sins, and thank you, God, that we have a brotherhood that we can come together and, and study together and pour over Scripture and uh, and yeah, critique each other. Just thank you for the, the pastors here in the church. And bless them for what they do uh, for their servanthood. Just ask that we could support them and back them up. And, uh, give us a good rest of the day for the one who brings the message. Give them uh, your words, God. We love you. Amen. Amen. Amen.